walk into my first day at school was probably the most terrifying day ever for me because I didn't know anybody. I didn't speak the language. And it, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. I didn't even get to say goodbye to my friends because I just kind of like I went on vacation and never came back. Hi, I'm Zina Berwazani and I'm a model minority. Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about. Whether you're Black, White, Brown, Yellow, Gay, Straight, Boy, Girl, or anything in between. This is a show about all of you for all of us. So today we're talking to Zineb Alwazani. And Sharon, I didn't know what to make of Z when uh, our mutual friend introduced us to her. She's like a Moroccan tennis pro doing like just nonprofit work based in Geneva. She seems like she's just kind of had it all. And I was like, okay, I, she's represents the model minorities part, the model part to a T. I don't know. What do you think about Z? Yeah. When I read her bio, and I read her quick notes before we got on the phone. I thought she was like a Moroccan princess, literally. I thought she was, you know, going to be somebody that came onto the show to talk about how her life was perfect and was perfectly sort of planned out for her and kind of had all of these opportunities. But our conversation with her actually revealed a lot of things that surprised me and both inspired me about her. Yeah, it's just really pleasantly surprised. I mean, some of the things she was saying reminded me of what my own parents' experience was, um, you know, whether it was my dad coming to, coming to this side of the world as a teenager or as a 20-year-old, and my mom coming over, not knowing the culture, not knowing what to expect. And it's so interesting to talk to someone that's our age, right, who went yep. through the same thing that our parents must have. And, you know, there's two moments in it where she talks about not being able to say goodbye um, at moment when she was 13, right? Yeah. Or that moment in the consulate's office with the red stamp and the curtain closing, mm -hmm. just like, wow. Her entire future completely changed in one moment out of her control. Really powerful. We should probably just stop talking and just jump right into <laughs> it. You guys are going to love this one. Um, please meet Zineb Alwazani. So Z, we um, know a little bit about you, but why don't you tell the audience who you are and what you're doing now professionally, and then we'll dive into some more fun stuff. Sure. Um, so yeah, so my name is Zeynep and uh, all my friends call me Z, and I'm from Morocco, currently living in Geneva, Switzerland, and I play professional tennis. That's amazing. How long have you been playing tennis? Um, so it's, it's kind of a long story, but, um, I, I just got back to tennis after a long pause of more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I've gone back to tennis, uh, five to six months ago after stop my career, um, uh, a little bit over, yeah, over 10 years ago. And, um, 
yeah, now just trying to revisit that idea and kind of see if I could uh, make it back into professional tennis. That's fun. Well, so I, I definitely want to dig in because I know there's a lot of interesting stories that jump borders. <laughs> there's a lot of legal stuff involved. Mm-hmm. But backing up even before then, so you said you were born in Morocco. So can you tell us just a story, a, a moment about your life when you were a little kid in Morocco, something that might have shaped who you are, how you think about the world? Oh, yes, totally. I honestly, I, I actually feel like I had a lot of privileges growing up in Morocco. I was very lucky that I was able to pursue my dream, which was uh, tennis. Pretty much had all the ingredients for success. I mean, I had the right ecosystem, a very loving family. My parents were committed to do everything uh, in their power to make sure I had everything. I was on, on schedule. I had my driven to and from school, taken to the tennis training, to my practice, managing my nutrition, uh, sponsoring all of my activities, my travels to play tennis uh, tournaments. Um, I Pretty much I had the discipline, the passion, and a very, very clear objective since very young age into playing professional tennis eventually. How old were you when you knew you wanted to play tennis? I, I was four actually. And I was, uh, the only, the, the main reason why I started playing was because I used to watch my older brother play. Um, he's, uh, six years older than me. And I used to go with my brother and my, my dad to the tennis club and I would sit there and just watch him play and watch him go into the, um, his practice. And I just really wanted to be part of that. And, uh, so yeah, uh, <laughs> As a matter of fact, funny stories, when I was, uh, I played my very first tournament when I was six years old and my dad didn't even know about it. So say more, why why didn't he know about it? So we were, we were used to go to this tennis club and my dad would uh, drop us off after school and then he would go back to work and then he would come back later on, uh, either meet with his friends and maybe play some cards, also do some sports himself. And then, but he didn't really take me seriously. I mean, in, in a sense, I was very young. I was only six and I was still, uh, I was barely, you know, I just learned how to walk, you know, let alone how to play tennis. And I was just like running around at the tennis club, playing with my friends and so on. And then one time the tennis coach at the club, he uh, thought it would be fun to just sign me up for the local tournaments, the annual tournament that they had at the club at the time. And, uh, but they, they just simply forgot to tell my dad. They signed me up and then <laughs> next thing I know, I'm, I'm on the court. I had no idea how to even count score on like when it comes to the actual, t- the, the, the score of the match. So I didn't know whether I was losing or I was winning. All I knew at the time was I was super excited to play. So I was on the court and we had the referee on the court as well. Uh, and I was playing with another girl who was probably my age, maybe a year or two older than I was. And, and then at some point, somebody went to my dad and told them, you know, you should come and check out Zina because she's playing a tournament right now. And he's like, How, what, are you sure? Are you sure you're talking about Zina, but not my <laughs> her brother? Because my brother was six years older and uh, it, it made more sense that he would be playing than I was. Yeah. So, yeah, he came running and then he found me playing. I, I lost that match, but I, I remember I had no idea whether I actually lost or I won. So I went after the match and then I just run to my dad and I asked him, so did I win? And, uh, <laughs> and he just looked at me and uh, I think that that was the moment for him where he realized, okay, there's something there that's worth pursuing and we need to uh, see it through. And that's where all the things got a little bit more serious for me, I would say. That's great. So were you one of, I'm sure, I mean, being being such a young tennis player, but probably also being a female tennis player must have been a little bit different. 
Do you have any stories about that growing up or, or what that was just like being in the industry as a, as a female tennis player? Yeah, I mean, for sure, this is usually sports is for for boys. That, that's mm-hmm. for sure. As a matter of fact, uh, even in the family, I happen to have an older sister uh, who was very athletic and older than my brother by a year or two. And she would have most probably, uh, she could have been an athlete, but she never got, have gone through that path, mostly right. because because of the, I guess the stereotypes at the time and, and the fact that, you know, girls are not really supposed to be playing sports. You're not really supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to stay at home. You're supposed to stay with your mom. You're supposed to see the, your grandmother over the weekend. You're not supposed to go play tournaments over the weekend. You know, yeah. it's acceptable for the boy to go and do sports and play tournaments and travel with, with, with his father, you know, but for, for the girl, it's something quite different. That's why my dad always says that I forced myself, uh, into that, uh, life. Uh, and if it wasn't for me being super stubborn about it and very insistent from a very, very young age, um, that would have never happened because it just did never occur to him to take, let's say his daughter to train and to practice or to focus on his daughter in sports, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely it was something very, very, quite different. And eventually what I grew up as being, you know, perceived as the, um, I'm trying to look at the, trying to find the right word in English. Um, but it's basically, you know, like a a boy girl, you know, like a, some sort of a tomboy or something Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm not sure what's the right word for it. Yeah. But that's how I was perceived because I was always playing with the boys because there were very uh, few girls playing tennis. And so at the tennis club, I would train always with boys. I grew up playing with boys. And so eventually I would end up playing soccer and you know, end up playing all sorts of games, but mostly with the boys. So, yeah, definitely that that was uh, quite a, um alienating, I would say, life right. for me with versus, let's say, the rest of the other girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've, I visited Morocco as a tourist and um, just even being there as a visitor and as a woman, and it was me and a girlfriend of mine going just so, so two, two females going together. There were definitely cultural differences in the way that we behaved or even just the way that people responded to us. And so I can't even, I mean, I asked you that because I can just, I can't even really imagine those types of challenges on a much deeper level. But thankfully, because of your willfulness and wanting to win and just for your love of tennis, it seems like that really um, that really drove you through. And, and your dad seemed to be very supportive as well. So that's great to hear. Yes, definitely. What did your parents do? Uh, my dad uh, was a banker and my mom uh, worked at the Ministry of Education. And I'm assuming they were born and raised in Morocco as well? Yes. So, uh, you, you know, it's funny, you referenced your grandma and, you know, your sister was supposed to go visit your grandma. How did, um, and cause my folks kind of, you know, also grew up overseas and the path they chose was a little bit different from the one their parents wanted, their parents even expected. Right. And I guess, uh, can you walk me through kind of the generational differences? Like, did your parents do what they were supposed to do? Did your parents, were they breaking ground? You were clear, you and your brother and your sister were, you know, obviously the next generation changing. But I, I want to walk the listeners through like how things have been changing in Morocco through the generations up to, to the moment you're at. So like, what did your grandparents do? What did they expect of your parents? Did your parents break the mold? Did you break the mold? What, what's kind of the difference in what was going on? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, our, from what I remember <laughs> is, uh, so my, my grandparents, um, they were, I mean, they all married each other at a very, very young age. So yeah. if I'm not mistaken, my, my grandpa, my grandmothers, both, both sides, they married when they were probably at the age of 13, 14, 15, around that age. So pretty, pretty young and they've had, uh, multiple kids, right? So coming from large families. So my, my parents, they both had, now I, mean, I don't know if you would require large, what would you define as a large family? But for example, my, my dad has six, uh, brothers and sisters and, uh, my mom five. Yeah. And so, Same. yeah. Right. I mean, for me, it's kind of, it's pretty large, I would say compared to today. Uh, and how, I mean, today's family constructs. And so my, my, my grandfather, he, from my dad's side, because those are the, my grandparents that I, I guess that I've mostly grew up with the most and that I've seen the most because I lost my grandparents from my mom's side quite early. So I don't really remember that much from it, but they, um, my grandfather, uh, my grandmother never worked, first of all. And uh, she never, I mean, by the time she, bef like very, very soon before she actually died, that's when she learned how to write and read her name for the first time. So up until that, like maybe like a couple of years before she died, you know, she was never uh, admitted to school or never had any sort of education. And my grandfather, he used to work at a painting company. So he was pretty much a painter. And then after that, he went on an early retirement, very, very early in his age, quite early, as in probably in his 30s or so, um, after he had um, his kids. And so the expectations was that his 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 kids would take over and that's his, that's the investment. So I'm going to have a lot of children and those children are going to grow up and they're going to work and then they'll help me uh, in my life and they're going to support the family. So that was sort of like the the way my my dad grew up and so that pushed him very quickly into um he went to school but he wasn't able to finish school because of the fact that he had to quickly uh get out of school and get a job and and support his family support his sister's uh brother and 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 his parents and so he comes from a very very hard working background you know super disciplined very committed and somebody who dedicated his life to making sure everybody was okay financially and stable. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, he's a self-made man is somebody who didn't have, let's say the degree, but still managed to make it in the end as a, a director of a bank and agency at the end of his career, which I think is pretty awesome considering how, how challenging it's been for him. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers that, your question, but, um, you know, it does. It's it's this the the generational differences are something. You know, I have these conversations with a lot of my American friends, and there's obviously a lot of parallels, but there's a lot of differences. Like uh, both of my grandmothers, yeah, I don't could read at like a very elementary level through through their entire life, right? They could speak four languages, whether it's Swahili <laughs> or Hindi, but um, the expectation of them was very different. And even you know what I hate to say, we've got it easy. Uh, because I don't think any of us do <laughs> being stuck at home, <laughs> uh, doing a bunch of things with the child at home. But yeah, I have one kid. I don't have eight kids. Uh, I do. I think anyone with kids wants to do everything in the world for your kid. But it's the level of devotion and um, hardship that that parents and our, our grandparents even thought generationally. I think it's very 
I have to be careful what I say, but it's just I, <laughs> in case they I, listen. <laughs> no, no, I'm not actually worried about my parents. I I think they work harder than I work, but I think um, and I think we have it really easy, Sharon. I uh, I think it has something to do with leaving things behind, right? Um, uh, moving families across borders. Um, and Z, you're the first generation to leave, so maybe we jump into that. Um. Why'd you leave at 13? Was it for tennis? Did your, did your parents get a job? Uh, d- did, you, did you get into a bank robbery <laughs> and leave the country? <laughs> what, what happened at the age of 13? Why'd you, why'd you leave Morocco? It sounds like you had a pretty sweet life. Mm, yes, <laughs> I did. I was at that time. I was I was already number one in Morocco. I was part of the Moroccan national team of tennis. I was already playing like the African Championship, the Arab Championship. It was pretty cool. And then at that time, actually, my my brother and my sister had already left uh, to U.S. at that time for college. And so it's pretty funny because we went on vacation. It was a summer vacation uh, to visit my brother and my sister. So I went with uh, my parents. And then by the end of that summer, my parents went back and I didn't. So they pretty much left me in the U.S., uh, and, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't planned per se. Where, where in the U S were you again? In, in Virginia. Yes. I think maybe they, they were talking about it. I guess they were thinking about it, but nobody ever really shared those thoughts with me up until the moment. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. know, it was like a few weeks before the, the, you know, the, the, the event. And uh, the way it went is basically because I was doing so well at tennis and with the U.S. being a country that really encourages athletic people and having way more opportunities for scholarships, for even uh, to get a shot at playing pro, uh, that was the place to be. And at that moment, you know, with my brother and my sister both being in college, so it was like having already family in the U.S. So when my parents uh and I went to, to visit my brother and sister as we were spending a few months with them. I played a couple of tournaments locally in the U S and they went well. And so one thing led to another, I guess. And they had that conversation, uh, you know, like, I guess it it came from my brother who actually pitched the idea to my dad, you know, here's a crazy idea. Why don't you leave Z with me? And she gets to live with me and then, you know, I'll take her to school. I'll take care of her. And then she's going to have the chance to play tennis here. She'll be able to practice. She'll be able to train and uh, also learn English, which, by the way, I didn't speak a word of at that time. And uh, and eventually we would see if she, you know, she can get a shot here at playing pro because let's just say that I, at, at that level in Morocco, I had saturated I have reached all levels, possibly. I was already number one in in the country. I was already playing for the Moroccan national team, and I was already playing the African championships and playing also some a few international tournaments here and there. But it it, it was time for me to kind of like take it to the next step, and I guess that's what my parents thought, and and I felt that that could be something good for me. So when your parents made the decision, you didn't speak English. Nope. <laughs> What was your mother tongue? Uh, Arabic, French, or yes. what we speak? So Moroccan is, uh, yeah, so we learn Arabic and French at school, classical Arabic and then uh, French. And then the dialect is is Moroccan, which is a mix of French, Arabic, Berber, Spanish. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed language. And so, so yeah, so they left, they, when they left, I, first of all, like the whole system is completely different because I was in school following the French system. And all of a sudden, uh, now I'm following the American system, which is completely different. And on top of that, I'm going to a school 
which looked exactly like in the movies uh, yeah. to me. So it was like, wow. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? What, what, what is your perception <laughs> as a Moroccan girl? Man, what is it's, an like, <laughs> it's like the, you know, the movies, uh, like movies like the Mean Girls, for example. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like lockers in the, in the hallway and exactly. Kind of yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. I mean. And, and that was something that for me, it was like, like, a, like a dream, but at the same time, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. And on top of that, I couldn't speak a word of English. I kid you not. Like I would walk into my first day at school was probably the most terrifying day ever for me because I didn't know anybody. I didn't speak the language and it, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. I didn't even get to say goodbye to my friends because I just kind of like I went on vacation and never came back. <laughs> so, and, and at that time, we didn't have WhatsApp. We didn't have the same, you know, internet was not uh, as open, you know, for everybody at that time. Uh -huh. So we had MSN, um, you know, so that was something that we could use. The computers were still kind of introduced uh, in, in homes. So, so yeah, it was, it was definitely a huge uh, difference for me, a huge culture shock. Also, in terms of the type of food that they were serving at the canteen in in in, in high school at the school there, uh, very different. What was the weirdest food for you that you the weirdest American food in that first year? It was the burgers. Honestly, it was the amount of burgers <laughs> and fries we were getting every day. Uh, yeah, I wasn't used to that because I grew up. I mean, we were eating at home, home cooked stuff. You know, lots of vegetables lots of fresh fruits, you know, that's how I grew up. And then all of a sudden there's, everything is supersized, right? So I get right. the extra, extra large Coke. I've never seen that in my life. Uh, <laughs> the, the French fries, the, the cheeseburgers, the chicken burgers, all sorts of burgers all the way. And so I show up um, my first day and I remember my brother gave me some pocket money and he was like, yeah, yeah, you can eat at the canteen. Just get yourself some food from there. And, and I remember because I was so not used to it that it made me sick. And I get into class in the afternoon. And also, you have to keep in mind, also in terms of behavior, I come from a, from a mentality of, you know, if you want to, if, if you, it's, it's disrespectful to leave the, the classroom in the middle of class. Mm -hmm. You have to wait until the class is over to go to the bathroom. You know, it's just, that's how we show respect. Mm -hmm. And so, but, but in the U.S., it's okay if you have a pass. All you need is for the professor or the teacher to sign it for you. And then you can go to, you know, a hallway pass and you can go to the bathroom and whatever. But I was so unfamiliar with that concept. I didn't know if it was okay to do it, even though I did have it in my hands. All I had to do was, you know, raise my hand and ask for permission to leave the class. And I couldn't do that because I was too shy to do it. Overly self-conscious about the fact that I couldn't speak English. And the fact that, I mean, I, it was my first day. So I was like, I don't know if it's okay to do it or not. So I had to stay there in class feeling sick up until like almost by the end of the class where I just couldn't hold myself anymore. I just stood up and I looked at, and the whole class, throughout the whole session, I kept repeating the senses, the, the sentence that I wanted to tell my teacher, you know, like raise your hand and say, hello, hi, excuse me. Can I go to the bathroom, please? Just that simple sentence I had to say to myself over and over again throughout the whole class, just because I was too shy to raise my hand and, and just ask for the permission to leave, to wow. go to the bathroom. And that was, those were, I had a lot of these little um, stories or thing, incidents happen to me throughout my experience in high school, because those are like all these cultural differences and all the, 
insecurities that came forward and, and, and so on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's also, that's a really pivotal time. I think, you know, 13, 14 overall, even if you were an American girl growing up here, there would still be so many social pressures at that age too. So well, the mean were, girls, right? Well, yeah. The mean girls thing are just trying to fit in. Um, oh, so yeah. to think that you were there, <laughs> language barrier. And I mean, just to take a step back, you were ranked number one in your country. I mean, that's like Serena Williams walking into a school, you know? Yeah. And meanwhile, you were just completely humble about it. Even the way you introduced yourself on this call, you said something along the lines of, I, I play professional tennis. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm laughing about that because it's like, yes, that's true, but you are a world ranked top tennis player. <laughs> and so with that kind of going into a new environment um, where nobody else knows that about you and then mm -hmm. having to having to find ways to fit in. So mm -hmm. tell us, I mean, so we've we've heard about the, the, the terrible lunch on day one, but were there other things that you felt you had to do um, to fit in or to make friends over time during your experience in high school? So, um, well, I had to take extra additional English classes. Uh, mm -hmm. So I had regular English classes and then I had the English as a second language class, uh, which to me was quite an interesting experience as well, because usually that class includes all the non-native speaking, uh, English speaking people, right? And so I show up first day uh, to that class and then most of the people that were there, the other students were either, most of them were from Latin America. And so I show up and because of my, also my, my, my skin tone um, that could be similar to, to Latin American, everybody thought I was either from Mexico or from Puerto Rico. So they assumed I spoke Spanish which was another challenge for me because I show up in class and then I remember this boy walks to me and he goes, hola. And I'm thinking, oh, I know that word. Of course, I, mean, I know hola. <laughs> so right. I look at him and I'm like, I'm all excited because somebody just came to me to, to talk to me. So I'm like, hola. I said, hola back. And then he goes, bah, 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 bah. and I'm like, no, 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 español. no, 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 no. And he goes, and he keeps going, you know, in Spanish. And I'm like, no, 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 no Spanish. So he thought that I was actually faking it. He didn't believe that I didn't speak Spanish. He thought that right. I just didn't want to talk to him. And I just continued saying no. So he wouldn't stop until I decided to switch in Moroccan. And that's where he looked at me and he's like, whoa, that <laughs> sounds like nothing I've ever heard in my life. And I'm like, yes, see, sí, no Spanish. Espanol, no, nada, no. <laughs> and that's when, that was like the first thing. He just looks at me and he goes, okay, okay. And then he, he went and, and he took his seat and probably wondering where, where I was from because the next thing that happened after that was the teacher asking me where I was from. And as soon as I said Morocco, yeah, nobody knew where Morocco was from. So they had to pull up um, a map so that I could locate it for them because they had no idea where Morocco was or what it was. And so the moment I would show that Morocco was in Africa, mm -hmm. everybody would look shocked at me simply. Mm -hmm. and, and they would look at me. And then the, the next question, the next comment that I would get was, well, you from Africa? I say, yes. <laughs> and they say, well, how come you're not black? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. So I used to get all those. So there was that. And then the next thing, of course, my, the teacher would ask all sorts of questions, you know, like to introduce me to the class. And she's like, you know, what kind of languages do you speak? So I say, I speak Arabic. I speak French. 
And then they look at me and they say, oh, you speak Arabic. Yes. So how come you're not wearing the veil if you speak okay. Arabic? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, so first now I need to be black wearing the veil. And if I look with the way I look, then I should, be, otherwise I should be speaking Spanish. You know, so I had all these already predisposed like expectations from people on my first day in, mm-hmm. in high school at the age of 13. So that kind of like sums up kind of a, a few experiences that I've had that were a bit weird for me and very strange. And I had to cope with in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I want to ask kind of piecing together the timeline and, and some of the stuff, you know, in your official bio, uh, where were you in 2001 and specifically in September, 2001, were you in the States or had you already left? No, I was, uh, I was still in Morocco actually. Okay. I came and, after. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess. So re ask the question, I guess you had to go back. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't stay in the U S can you, Talk about what was that moment? Why weren't you allowed to stay? And what did that, I mean, because you were building a life in the United States. You were, you were going to be a pro tennis player. You were going to get mm-hmm. a scholarship, et cetera. And then all of a sudden the rug got yanked out from under you. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that happened, what you went through, all of that? Sure. Yes. I mean, when I was in the U.S., it was, I mean, it took me some time to, to adjust to the life there, right? So uh, a very different culture, new language, uh, which w- I was able to learn. I was able to cope with the new lifestyle. I was living with my brother. My parents were back home and I was studying in a, in a, in a completely new language and a new system. Then after that, I was able to adapt to this new reality. I was able to actually win the state championship in Virginia. And I was doing really well. As a matter of fact, my last year of high school was probably the best year of my life or one of the best years of my life, because I was uh, traveling all over the U.S., uh, being flown by the head coaches of uh, universities for the tennis programs, just so they could uh, convince me to pick their schools uh, for college, so I could play college for them. So that was really, really cool, because I was, I was getting full scholarships everywhere, literally anywhere I could think of. And in the end, I picked this amazing university in Florida, University of South Florida. And at that time, the head coach was uh, Gigi Fernandez. Gigi Fernandez, she was number one in the world for seven consecutive years in doubles at tennis. So she was kind of a big deal when I met her and, and she saw me play and she said, you know what, I want you, I'm going to give you a full ride scholarship. And you're going to come play for me. And uh, the university is great, great uh, education program. And you'll be able to play professional as well. So you'll get the education and you'll be able to train seriously with a, with a serious team and a pro team. And the number one at the time in the school, um, in the program of, of the university, she was ranked top 200 in the world. So for me, that was the dream. This was the thing that I've been working my whole life for. And plus Florida, I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's sunny. The weather is great. There's the beach, you know, people are always happy. <laughs> so for me, that was exactly where I wanted to be after all the hard work and everything that I've w- I went through. And then, um, it all came down to this one week basically where I had to go back to Morocco for a quick change of status. It was a formality. And you have to note something when, I don't know if you guys have ever, been into a, a, a consulate, if you've ever had to go into uh, yeah. a consulate to ask for a visa. So, I mean, the way it goes in Morocco, at least at the time, you go into the consulate. First of all, that was the first time I'm going in as, a, as an adult, because up until that moment, I used to go in as a minor. So either my dad or my mom would go into the room with me 
where I had to go uh, for, through an interview with the consulate for the visa. And they would ask you all sorts of routine questions to ask why is it that you want to go to U.S.? What do you intend on doing? Are you going to come back? And all that stuff, making sure that your story checks out and so on. I mean, up a, right now, everything seems great. So I'm like, no problem, because we've done this so many times before with my parents. But that moment, it was the first time I'm going back in, but this time as an adult, because I'm over 18 years old. So I go there. My, my parents, they drop me off. They go by a coffee shop waiting outside of the, the consulate. I go inside, security check. I go through all that stuff. We go into the room. And basically, it's like a cubicle. And you can imagine a cubicle, kind of like a... I mean, it, it, it sounds like a prison phone meetup room type of thing where you can talk to somebody with a phone on your hand, but through a glass ceiling. So you can't touch them, but you can talk to them on the phone. And that's how it was for me. And then there's like a little tiny, like little window where you can kind of like just throw your and push your papers and your passport and any type of documents that they may ask for. I sit there. And picture this. So I'm there and I'm, I'm over 18. I'm confident. I'm thinking this is routine. I've done this so many times. I'm okay. I sit there. I'm only there for a week anyways, because I've signed my contract with the university that I'm going to go play with uh, for, and it's all, it's all good. I sit there and then the interviewer looks at me. He asks for the papers. I give him all my papers. I give him my passport, everything he asked for. And, and then he looks at me and he goes, you're not going back. What? And yeah. Wow. I, so I look at him and I'm like, uh, what do you mean? I'm, I'm not, I'm not going back. He's like, yeah, you're done. That's it. It's over. And I look at him and I'm like, well, uh, I, I mean, I don't understand that. I mean, now this is the one, I mean, the one thing that my parents didn't prepare me for. I don't know how to answer that. Uh, well, what do I say? And he just looks at me and he goes, yeah, you're done. And he just takes my passport and he takes a huge red stamp, puts it, stamps my passport so hard that it says U.S. visa revoked. Whoa. And then he throws back my passport at me. And that was it. And he says, you are not to go back to the U.S. until you are 90 years old, nine zero. And I, I look at him and, and I have tears coming, like coming into my eyes and, and I'm looking at him and, and I don't know what to say. And so I started pulling, like pushing back papers, uh, articles from newspapers about me with pictures, uh, my tennis, you know, curriculum, CV that shows all the, all the results, all the achievements I've done, my degree. I mean, I actually managed to, to graduate valedictorian in high school even. So I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. And, and I look at him and I'm like, please, this is my future you're talking about. And he looks at me and he goes, I don't care. And at that moment, I'm, I just didn't know what to say. And then he hung up the phone, uh, shut the drapes, and that was it. Told me to leave. And so what was the reason? It was just because your, your, your answers didn't match what they had on record? Honestly, I mean, this is uh, the million-dollar question. This is the kind of, uh, you know, when, when, you ask, uh, when you ask for a visa, I mean, there's no guarantee that you will get it. They, right. they, they probably have their own reasons, but they're not... Uh, they don't have to share that reason with you. But however, I mean, these are, these are things that are beyond your control, right? That you can simply just can't understand. And I yeah. think until that moment, I have never failed. I had never failed. Uh, and, and, and that was my first failure at a, such a young age. 
mm-hmm. um, and and that was simply beyond my control. I that's it. It was the decision of one person that changed completely the course of my life. Wow. Uh, wow. So I, I that's it. I, I I mean I leave the the consulate and I'm looking for my dad and that was the the next hardest thing was when I left the consulate and and my dad thinking he he he's looking at me and he thinks it's done you know I had my visa everything's good and I look at him and I'm like I didn't get it and mm-hmm. he and my dad being he's always been like a strong figure role model for me he's always been super protective of me. And he looks at me and he's also just as shocked when I showed him my passport and the big stamp that said U.S. visa revoked. And, uh, and probably that was the first time I ever saw my, my dad being powerless. And he just didn't know what to do either. Wow. So fast forward, mm-hmm. I mean, you were able to leave Morocco because I think you're in Geneva now. You, you met a nice Italian boy. You, you, had, a jo- <laughs> you had a pretty su- uh, sweet, awesome job at... Uh, at a massive tech corporation, um, you founded organizations. You've done a lot. So, how do you come back from that? Because it seems like that was just a sudden jump off a cliff, right? You you were riding high, and then everything just stopped. But you came back. Yes. Walk us through that journey, coming back, and and how you got to where you are today. And I want to hear. I want to hear more about this Italian boy too. By the way. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> he's, he's quite suave. Yeah. I've, I've met him a couple of times. <laughs> um, I mean, listen, the, the, short, the short answer is you go through a series of questioning everything uh, mixed with depression, with uh, uh, basically thinking that it, why do anything at all? Why, why play tennis? Why go to school at all? So I basically, that was my rebellion phase probably about a for, that lasted for about a year where I decided, you know what? Nobody gets to tell me what to do anymore. I'm not playing tennis. I burned all my clothes. I burned the passport also, for that wow. matter. I burned, uh, I broke all my tennis rackets, all those equipment. And I decided, you know what? That life is over and I don't want to ever hear about it. And that's it. It never happened. I never played tennis. It was just a dream. That's it. I just don't want to talk about it anymore. And that was it. And I just eventually fast forward from that moment. Obviously, the, the depression time where I didn't want to see anybody and just staying at home and in Morocco and again, going through this massive reverse culture shock because here I am back to Morocco, back, which to me felt like a huge setback in terms of my tennis career because I've already conquered, let's say, that market and I was ready and on my way to conquering more, uh, re- more, more challenges, bigger bigger challenges for me. And now I'm back to step zero and it just didn't make sense to me anymore. And I couldn't make sense out of it. So that was it up until about a year after then my dad kind of forced me into going back to school. It was either go to school or, or get out of the house. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I ended up going to this university, uh, in Morocco and that school was, I thought, you know what, this is, this is great. It's a university, small university in, in the, in the middle Atlas region in Morocco. It's in the mountains. Um, luckily they, they follow the American system. And that was the, it was a part of the, let's say the, the university that people didn't really know my story. So I decided, you know what, this is great. I'm going to go there. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows that part of me. So nobody's going to pity me and nobody's going to ask any questions about that part of my life. And I could just reinvent myself. And then the real reason why what brought me back to life really was the act of service. 
I started looking at people in the villages around in the Middle Atlas region, and I could see how my life compared to theirs was was heaven, and that I owed it to myself to um, get off my, you know, stop being s- sorry for myself and do something with my life, and that it was up to me, and that I was the only person that could help myself. And that's when I started working uh, massively on community service, social work, so much, which by the way, I mean, it was because of that community service that actually led me to meeting my, my, <laughs> my cute Italian husband, uh, <laughs> eventually uh, along the way, a few years afterwards. But yeah, so that was kind of like in, in, in summary, that's what brought me back, I would say to out of the depression. And I got to discover a whole different side of myself. I got to reinvent myself. I was able to get a bachelor degree, then a master's in, in business administration. And then I was able to land in, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world uh, as a top talent uh, and was able to move to another country, lived in, in, in Turkey. And, and basically at the same time, we were also continuing our efforts into fixing the visa problem, by the way. It's just that it took us years before it got fixed. And right. so by that time, a, a tennis career, that's it, it's over. And I couldn't just sit around and wait and do nothing. So I had to start something. I had to start my life somehow, somewhere else. And, and that's it. So I kind of discovered this whole side of me and started a whole different career. So sometimes it's always tricky when also in, in when I go into uh interviews today like for jobs or it's always been interesting because every time i talk to somebody about my life they always say oh my god it's like we're talking to completely different people because when you're talking about your sports um experience it's a whole life and now you're talking about your professional career and what you've done and you've landed in the biggest tech companies in the world and all that stuff and how how the hell did you do that like when did you do that so everybody wants to check the timeline how old are you when did you do this and when did you do that? Because that's just not, it doesn't sound <laughs> yeah. like a normal, regular timeline. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, so that was, um, that pretty much brought me to, to the life that I have today, which is being in Geneva. And that came after working uh, more on the social, social work and the community service sphere because I joined this volunteering organization. And uh, this organization, they used to have this, um, uh, annual meeting for, let's say, presidents of hubs or for the presidents of the chapters of this particular volunteering organization. And uh, that event was taking place in Geneva. And I came here in 2015 for that annual meeting. And that's when I met Luigi, who was at the time the head of his, uh, the chapter of the same organization in, in Geneva. And so, yeah, so one thing led to another. We met, it took us a week to fall in love, four months for him to propose, and then a year for us to actually go, get, go through the marriage. And then about a year and a half later, I, I moved into Geneva. How does um Arab girl from Morocco tell her parents that I met an Italian guy last week? <laughs> and, and, I've only, and I've only known him for four months. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was, uh, man, it's such a movie in itself as well, because I come from, a, so my, my and older... To be clear, is it Z? Yeah. Z, uh, you're straight up Bollywood, because all like the song and dance numbers happen in Switzerland. So yeah, very, very <laughs> Bollywood of you. Yeah, I mean, 
the, the thing is my, my family comes, it's like there are, people always, our friends always make fun of us because of the, the story. Not because I've, I'm not the only person, the only uh, person in the family who married somebody out of, uh, not out of Morocco. So my, my older sister, she, she married an American and, uh, and she's seven years older than me. So that was the first time my parents had to hear about it. My dad wasn't too happy to be honest, because he would have hoped that uh, my sister would marry somebody from the same culture, right? So at least someone who, or at least somebody who spoke the language, you know, he spoke English. So so my parents didn't speak English. So it was a bit tough. Then my brother comes next and then he, uh, he married a girl from Czech Republic. So, okay, close enough. We're getting close. It's in Europe, but still, she didn't speak the language. She was different. And so they were hoping that with me being the youngest, the last one, and on top of that, I was based in Morocco at that time. So chances are that I would bring a Moroccan home was very high. So my dad was super excited about this. He's like, yeah, when my daughter is going to get matter, uh, mar- married, she's going to bring home a Moroccan. I'm confident. That's it. They even tried <laughs> to set me up at some point with, with people that didn't work out. And then eventually... One day, uh, I'm like, yeah, I, I have to introduce them to Luigi. And, you know, after he proposed, I, I go to, I, try, I, I sat with my dad and, and I told him, you know, I'm, I'm getting married, right? Or somebody wants to come see you. Actually, I, could, I couldn't really tell him I'm getting married. I just said, there's somebody who wants to see you and he wants to see you and asks for my hand. So my dad goes, yeah, of course, you know, he's welcome. Tell him to bring his family over and we'll, you know, for tea and then we'll talk it over. Because he's thinking, and in Morocco, it's very common, right, to normally if you want to ask for somebody's hand, you need to come and bring your family. So your parents, maybe your immediate siblings. And so, and you can come and for the first introductory meeting and, and that's where you ask officially for the girl's hand. And so my dad is thinking, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, they're welcome to come. And I'm like, yeah, it's just going to be a little bit tricky because they're not from here. And he goes, okay, but what do you mean? He's not from here. I'm like, well, he's, he's from Italy and he was based in Switzerland and his family is in Italy. And then my dad, uh, just, he didn't say anything. So we didn't talk about it for three weeks after that. I just needed to give him time to digest yeah. that information. And then after that, we came back and then I, I had to ask him again because Luigi was buying his ticket to come and meet my dad. So he's like, I'm coming, whether you like it or not. So just have your dad ready to meet with me by this date. Uh, So I told my dad, you know what, he's going to come meet him. And, you know, if you don't like him, I won't marry him. Just meet him first. Right. Right. So, and I'm thinking if, if I can get them. No no pressure on Luigi, by the way, no pressure. I'm like, all I have to do, this is it. I'm just going to get you a meeting with my dad. And then the rest is up to you. Right. So you make it happen. And uh, so my, and then Luigi, I remember he showed up at that meeting. It was like a interrogation day uh, with my dad, no coffee, no water. No tea, nothing. We didn't offer him anything. My dad just <laughs> had him sit down in the office area and then he just straight up asking questions. Why you? Why my daughter? Why a Moroccan? And why should we go with you? It was pretty yeah. much like an interview question for a job. And 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 Luigi, you know, being a businessman, he just took it as a business meeting. <laughs> he went in with the with a box of chocolate in one hand and a bag of pasta on the other hand. <laughs> and uh, offering that to the to my parents, and he just went and boom, 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 you know, like a, a sales pitch. 
Yeah. And, and by the end of it, my dad uh, was convinced. And then he asked him over for, he was like, now you've finally earned yourself a meal. So we, could, move, we could have him move to the, <laughs> to the dining table. We could have uh, an actual meal and, and, and eat together and, and talk some more. Uh, but eventually after that, there was like a series of, uh, of hoops on which uh, Luigi had to jump over to, to, to get to the point where we actually got married. Like the fact that his parents actually had to come to Morocco and they had never been outside of Italy before. Wow. So, and the first country they've ever been out of was Morocco. Wow. And they, they came in with all the stereotypes, you know, thinking uh, we don't have cars, we're still riding camels. And everybody is, you know, maybe I was trying to marry Luigi for the papers, you know, like all mm -hmm. sorts of stereotypes, right? Yep. And that was funny uh, encounter where, where, where his family came over and met with my family, especially where they didn't have a common language because Luigi's family spoke only Italian and my parents didn't speak Italian. They spoke French and Arabic. And so, yeah. So the communication between the the two was only possible through one person that spoke all common languages, which was me. Because <laughs> I don't speak Italian either. Right, right. So, so yeah, that was that was quite an interesting uh, journey for us as uh, as as we embarked in, into this new experience. Uh, but it's been great, and we were able to 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 enjoy a a Moroccan wedding and then an Italian wedding. We even did a celebration in Geneva as well. Um, so it was really, really cool from that moment on. That's so beautiful. That really is like a movie with such a happy ending. I love that. Yeah, for sure. So <laughs> at, at the end of the movie, right? Um, yeah. you can write a letter back to yourself, the, the little 10 year old who hasn't left for Virginia yet. What do you tell her? Oh, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, I think for sure, for, for a long time, I let one person take control of my life, uh, even though I, I decided to, yes, I, I did start a new life. I did reinvent myself. I was able to learn so much about myself. I was able to overcome that obstacle. It made me stronger, for sure. It made me develop so many skills that were very useful uh, in the workplace afterwards in my career. Um, in the end, when I look at all these unfair advantages is what makes the experience full. It made me, it made me really stronger than ever. And as a matter of fact, here, here's actually a funny story right now, because as I told you at the beginning, I've, I've decided to go back to tennis about five months ago. Right. And that came from the, the, because of, I, I want to make sure that this story is, is I want to close the loop in a positive way, in a way that I control rather than continue giving the control to somebody who probably doesn't even remember me. He has mm -hmm. no clue how much that no affected my life. And so I decided to take control of my life, to take control of that no, and do something about it today as an adult, protecting that little girl who went through that trauma or that experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so... The funny thing today is I decided to go five months ago. I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm going to do this. And the thought of, I didn't even think at any point in time that I would ever be ready to go back on the tennis court ever again. But just the fact that I'm doing it today is a win for me. So I went back and I decided, okay, I'm living in Geneva. I want to go back to play tennis. Where should I go? So I started thinking, I looked around, I did some research and I decided to go to Milano. I moved to Milano in October. 
for a full-time program there, six hours a day. So I went from zero workouts, zero hours for 10 years to six hours a day of training and building again my strengths, building again my muscles, building again my tennis exp- uh, technique and all that stuff for five months. And fast forward through those five months, uh, then up until like a month ago, there's the virus uh, situation that comes into play. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, when, when, when I think about it, I'm like, okay, so 10 or 12 years ago, I was playing, I was on my way to building, you know, a professional tennis career. And then that stopped because of the visa situation, whatever that happened, uncontrollable factors. And then 10 or 12 years down the road, I decide, you know what? I'm going to take back the control. I'm going to go back to this tennis journey. And guess what? I choose Milano, the city where the virus actually kicked in first in Europe. <laughs> and on top of that, uh, right before, like a week before the confinement started, I had just won my very first tournament again since 10 years. So I was on my way again, like kind of building every little milestone. And then this happens. And so I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe this is happening again. But guess what? This time, it's not making me sad. It didn't make me depressed. If anything, all I was thinking is, you know what? The opposite would have been too easy. So the fact that now I'm getting into the challenge of being getting confined and having to get more creative with my trainings and finding different ways of making it happen, it just showed how much now I'm putting into practice my resilience, the skills that I've learned, my adaptability and everything. And that's thanks to all the experiences that I've had in, bef- in the past. Going back to that defining moment of when I was denied, you know, a visa or, or I was denied an entry to continue in my, my professional career. So, yeah, I would say, honestly, it's going to be okay as long as you see things, um, you take the challenges for what they are. You try to make the most out of it. You pick yourself up and yeah, you adapt and you move on. And you basically, in the end, um, it's like, it's like you survive to thrive. I think that's the best way I could put it. Yeah. (laughs) You survive to thrive. Yes, Yes. I love that. Perfect. I think we're ready for the speed round. What do you think, Raman? Yeah, I think so. I, well, I don't know, Z. I mean, you've been through a lot, but I don't know if you're ready for speed around. Are you ready for? Uh... <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> We're going to ask you a bunch of questions and like really with really quick answers. That, so, that, have, that have nothing to do with anything. <laughs> yeah, just random okay. quick answer, questions and answers. <laughs> sure. Okay. You go for sure. All right. <laughs> What's one thing about you that nobody expects? Oh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but my friends know. I'm I think it's all. I hold, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I think no, I was going to say. I think this whole interview is unexpected. Yeah, that's so. true. That's true. So I guess you've answered that one already. Okay, your turn, Remen. Um, it's kind of a two-parter. Um, Z, are you more of a um a movie person, a book person, or a TV person? Uh, yeah, all three combined, to be honest. I like all of them. All right. Like all right. Yeah. All right. So, so then the, the second part is, can you recommend one that has characters that you relate to? A book, Ooh, a movie, I, or a TV I, show? I, I, I love, uh, I love Rocky, the movie. It's awesome. <laughs> it's just an amazing movie. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's what's funny. Unexpected answer, but with having heard your story and hearing everything you've said, it totally checks totally out. It totally makes sense. Yeah. I, I can hear the music throughout totally. the whole interview now. I can see you running up the steps, Z. You see you running up those steps. <laughs> it's a really cool movie. I like to watch it over it and over. Yeah, it's a really cool movie. Um, a book would be, I, I really like... Uh, the Code of the Extraordinary, Extraordinary Mind by Vishen Lachiani, of uh, CEO and founder of Mind Valley. It's really, really, it's a nice book. I would recommend it. Cool. Perfect. And then a TV show would be Narcos. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one's unexpected. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go with it. Um, here's another one for you. What's your favorite mom dish? What's something that your mom cooks that you love? Uh, she makes uh, so many good dishes, but her tagines are, are really amazing. It's, uh, yeah, with meat and vegetables, slow cooked, super, super delicious. Yeah. And what kind of meat does she use? Like chicken or beef? Uh, she uses, yeah, lamb or veal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lamb tagine. Yum. That sounds mm-hmm. so good. Yeah. What's your, what's your least favorite food? Yeah. Anything that has, too much sugar in it. I just can't take it. So you don't anything. have a sweet tooth? Not that much. I like dark chocolate, you know, so I'm more of a, I like bitter sweet, not, not the sweet, sweet um, taste. You know, it's funny, like you gave the perfect Moroccan answer for favorite food, but like I'm Indian and I think the only country in the world that like matches the sheer sugar quantity of its sweets is the Middle East or the only part of the world is like the Middle East. And like I've had Moroccan sweets. Like I, I've, I literally remember walking by a market and like the bees are literally going around yeah, the sweets. Like there's so much are. honey, honey on everything. Can't, <laughs> can't do it. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Too much for me. So funny. Um, if you had a podcast, who is somebody that you might want to interview for your podcast? It could be someone dead or alive. Uh, yeah, that's a nice one. Uh, yeah, I would love to talk to Vishen Lachiani. I think he's a pretty cool guy. Um, probably there's also, uh, Lisa Nichols. She's a, a famous uh, public speaker. Uh, motivational speaker. I love, yeah, Tony Robbins would be cool. But it's not, you know, it's, cool. it's not just for the podcast. I would love to meet them, you know, hang out. Yeah. Yeah, of course. All right, this, yeah. this whole podcast is just an excuse for Sharon and I to talk to two people. So <laughs> it's let's true. Be clear. We're like, let's make a list of everyone that we'd want to spend half an hour with. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's a good idea. All right. So, last question. Z, are you ready for the last question? Go for it. What does being a model minority mean for you? Uh, you know, I never, I never thought about that, to be honest. It never even occurred to me. I don't know. Just when you say model minority, I just think stereotypes. That's the first word that comes to mind. What, what, what's, what would the stereotype, if, if someone were to, to cast a stereotype for you, someone like you, what do you think they'd be thinking? Oh, yeah. So that depends where they're from. Uh, <laughs> so, and that was the uh, <laughs> Am I doing that? <laughs> Maybe this I is am. good. Uh, so, 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 someone, you, you know, you uh, you come into New York City. You come come to have a. You're coming to do a live interview with Sharon and Raman in New York post pandemic, and 
you know, you, you check in at the building. What's someone's stereotype of you? They meet this girl with a, a Swiss or Moroccan passport with a bunch of tennis rackets in her bag. What are, what are they thinking about you? What's that stereotype? So they probably won't know where I'm from. That's for sure. They'll wonder. Uh, because this happened to me so many times when I go to U.S. So either, like I said, it's either people think um, uh, I'm from Latin America or uh, as soon as we start talking and then they hear my accent, they don't think I'm from Latin America and now they're confused. So then automatically they think I'm probably from somewhere in Europe. But very rarely, almost never, uh, they would guess that I'm from North Africa. It, it almost never mm. happens. But then if, I, if I'm in Europe or let's say, yeah, even here in Italy, everybody thought I was Italian, for example, from, from Sicily from the south or otherwise you know mediterranean the looks you know from the looks so it really that's why i said it depends where i am at that moment because people will relate i guess to whatever they know is close to them and what the familiarity look right i guess that's what it is so maybe for you being a model minority is confounding the stereotypes <laughs> confusing yeah. them it is hey. it is it but i have fun with that so yeah, I yeah. enjoy doing that. Especially when you speak multiple languages, you can play any type of role. And then, yeah, it could be fun. <laughs> well, Zineb, uh, this has been just really interesting hearing your story. It's, it's funny. You, 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 uh, you know, we heard some of the story before we talked to you. And I think digging into some of the details just really reveals this, this really rich tapestry. And, you know, we've all had struggles in our life. And I think more important, there's a quote from Batman. I'm just going to do that. It's, Here we uh, go. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually his dad uh, in one of the Chris Nolan movies. It's like, why do we fall so we can learn to get back up again? And I, oh, I've yeah. been teaching my daughter that. And I feel like your life is such a beautiful story uh, to, that speaks to that, that truth. So thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to have you, Z. Thank you. Thank you. I, this is my first podcast ever, and I, was, I wasn't sure what to expect. I was super nervous about uh, getting personal and sharing personal stories of myself, but um, I'm glad I did. We are too. So much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit monmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. And here's a preview of our next episode. The first issue that comes to mind when I think about model minority is that there is a model minority, that there is a certain perspective, a certain approach you should take to the way you live your life, but there isn't. I mean, if we just look around, if we see in media, we probably don't see ourselves reflected very often, but just because we don't see ourselves in certain positions or roles or living with families or this or that, it doesn't mean we can't live our lives the way we want to live them. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all model minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.